This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. Where does this fit in into the tapestry of your family history? It's not something that the family has taken with any kind of joy. My father would mention armor on occasion, but he wouldn't say uh, anything about why we didn't know armor, that we'd never met him, you know, as one of our uncles. And his sisters, who were my grandfather's children, my aunts, they just didn't want to talk about it. If it came up, it was whispered about. It wasn't something, you know, you broadcast because, again, they were pillars of the community. They were very deeply religious. We didn't even want to acknowledge that they were part of the family. Los Angeles, during the early years of Prohibition, was a city that drew to it great artists and sleazy con men like Armour Phillips. But in July of 1922, Armour had more to worry about than just the police, because his wife Clara believed that he was cheating on her with a young widow named Alberta Meadows. Clara had always been dramatic. She was a chorus girl who had hoped to be a movie star. But lately, she was increasingly agitated, and their fights became more violent. Clara Phillips was at her neighbor Julia McElroy's house on Flower Street. She flinched when she heard the loud knocking. It was her husband, Armour, and he sounded furious. He yelled for Mrs. McElroy to let him inside. It was Saturday, July 8th of 1922. Clara hid quietly behind a door and listened as her husband bellowed at Mrs. McElroy. He had no idea that his wife was hiding around the corner, listening. He said that Clara was the cheater, not him. He knew she had spent the night with a man named Harry Karst. Now Armour wanted to thrash the man for sleeping with his wife. Where is he? Armour demanded to know. He said that his friend Alberta Meadows had told him all about it. Clara had actually come to the house that day to thrash Mrs. McElroy for spreading all these vile rumors about her sleeping with another man. But Armour had interrupted. Now Clara was livid at him. She stepped into the living room and screamed at Armour that he was the cheater, not her. Armour said he was going to leave her for Alberta. It was over. Their marriage was over. He told her, I'll own up to it. Alberta did tell me. Author Claudine Burnett says Clara felt betrayed for several reasons. The money that she thought Armour should be spending on her was going to another woman. She accused Armour of buying Alberta an expensive wristwatch. Armour denied it and quickly stormed out. Mrs. McElroy looked at Clara with pity and tried to make her feel better. But Clara got up, slammed the door, and walked around in a haze. She just wasn't sure what to do. That night, Clara returned home to her older sister, Ola May. She was pale and shaky and making threats. She wanted to die, and she picked up a bottle of poison. She screamed, he doesn't love me anymore. Mrs. McElroy did not tell him of that stuff about me staying with another man. Someone else told him. She told Olame that Alberta Meadows was to blame. 
Olamay screamed and tried to snatch the poison from her. And then Clara cried, there's another woman he's turned me down for. I don't want to live. Clara started having convulsions and it took an hour for her sister to calm her down. Olamay said, I thought she was dying. I realized her heart had been broken. After Clara had finally stopped crying, she picked up the phone and asked the operator to dial Peggy Caffey's number. Clara hated armor, and she had a plan that involved Peggy. Three days later, Clara and Peggy went shopping. They didn't talk about Alberta or armor or anything, really. Clara just wanted Peggy along for the company. Clara bought a skirt, a pair of slippers, and some stockings. As they stood on Broadway, she told Peggy that she just needed one more thing. Downtown was the place to go to go shopping in those days, and they had a lot of five-and-dime stores and that kind of thing. So while they were out that day, Peggy went with Clara into one of these stores. She said she didn't, I don't think she remembered which one it was. They descended the stairs into the store's basement as soft music played. Clara giggled as she hummed the tune. She told Peggy that she wanted to buy a heavy hammer, one with claws on it, to pull out tacks. They slowly walked up and down the aisles before heading to the front counter. A claw hammer with the label 15 cents seemed to interest Clara, so she picked it up. She told Peggy that this was all she needed. Clara glanced at the clerk and asked a question that should have seemed troubling at the time. But very soon, it would be quoted in newspapers around the world. She sort of coyly said to the guy behind the counter, the clerk, do you think this is heavy enough to kill someone? The clerk thought she was joking or something, and she smiled as he joked back. You don't think that would do the job? No one except Clara knew just how serious she was about that. She bought the hammer. Clara never mentioned her anger at Armour, the betrayal she felt over his affair with Alberta Meadows, which she thought was an affair. She actually seemed cheerful with Peggy as she carried the brown package tied with blue string. Clara wanted a drink, an alcoholic drink, so they stopped by a friend's room in a hotel on 10th Street. The man was a stagehand they knew when they were chorus girls. They stayed about five minutes, just long enough to discover that he didn't have any gin. Clara wanted to continue bonding with Peggy, so she asked to stay the night at Peggy's apartment. Clara said, my husband is home, but I am not going home tonight. Mother said he was there, but I am not going back home. So Armour had not spent the night with Alberta that night, according to Clara's mother who lived with him. But Clara ignored that bit of information. Clara called a taxi and returned to Peggy's apartment in Long Beach. As they settled in for a girls' night, Clara began to talk a lot. She described the upsetting conversation earlier with Mrs. McElroy and her husband. He had denied it, but she knew the truth. She was absolutely furious with armor. They had a few drinks and they opened up to one another. Peggy said she was also having problems with her husband. And then Clara said that she had heard that her husband was also having an affair. Peggy's husband was a field worker with Standard Oil in Long Beach. They had only been married for two years and their relationship already seemed stressful. Peggy was also young and she really needed a friend like Clara. They remember they were barely out of their teens. Peggy was only 20 and Clara was 23. 
So they got a girls' get-together. Signal Hill was a place that was rampant with speakeasies, with places that you could get liquor, because that's where the oil workers worked, and when they were done with a busy day on the oil rigs, they wanted to have their liquor. As Clara talked about armor, Peggy seemed empathetic, almost honored. Peggy thought, wow, she's really opening up to me, telling me about all of her problems. Clara needed to catch Armour with Alberta. He couldn't talk his way out of it if Clara had proof, not just rumors floating around with Mrs. McElroy. And so she was ready to confront her husband's mistress to confirm one way or the other if they were sleeping together. So she asked her good friend for a favor. She convinced Peggy to go over to Alberta's apartment. So they decided to do what young girls do. They decided to check it out. So they went over to where Alberta lived and sort of cased her joint for a while to see if maybe Clara's husband would show up. It was Tuesday, July 11th. Clara was covered in a dark cape when she and Peggy called a taxi cab that night. Clara seemed really agitated, so Peggy tried to calm down her friend. She told her, don't believe everything you hear. Nevertheless, the pair rode to Alberta's home in the Arvilla Apartments on West 37th Street in San Fernando Valley. And they paused outside as Clara explained the plan. She would climb the back steps and listen at Alberta's door. Clara might even try the door, burst in, and see if Armour was inside so she could catch him. Clara said she wasn't quite sure what she was going to do if she did catch her husband there with his lover, but she was livid, and she wasn't listening to reason. She was determined to wait there until Armour turned up with Alberta. They climbed the steps at the back of the apartment building. They found a small alcove where the building's bathtubs were for the residents. Peggy stood in the dark as Clara tiptoed down the hallway and stopped at Alberta's door on the right side. She put her ear to the door, Nothing. She looked through the peephole. No one was there. As Peggy stood around, she wondered what might happen if Armour were there. Lots of screaming, she assumed. Maybe even a fight. But after quite a while, Clara returned to the alcove. She had grown tired of waiting. But it was late, and Alberta wasn't home asleep. To Clara, that seemed very telling. Honestly, Peggy felt a little bit relieved. She might have been drunk from bathtub gin they found at a speakeasy, but she was sober enough to hope to avoid a confrontation. Peggy listened to Clara closely during the cab ride home. Clara was now convinced that Armour was sleeping with Alberta Meadows. Clara asked to spend the night at Peggy's apartment in Long Beach. She couldn't bear facing her husband, not without a plan, and she was making one now. As they slept next to each other, Peggy silently hoped that this excursion they took to Alberta's apartment might have been the end of all of this. Of course, she was very wrong. The next morning, Armour Phillips was concerned and nervous. The last thing a grifter needed was attention, and his wife seemed to thrive on it. He might have been a jerk, he could have been a cheater, but he had never been violent with her. Although true crime author Joan Renner says that Armour wasn't totally innocent here. He was handsome, very nice looking guy, a real cad. Oh, God. And just a con artist. Of course, Armour wasn't the only immoral man in Los Angeles in the 1920s. There were loads of them, especially in local government. 
Prohibition made it easy for swindlers to bribe corrupt politicians to cheat the system. There were a lot of players, but they were attached to City Hall. They called it the City Hall gang or the combination. And what it was was literally a combination of elected politicians and then sort of a shadow government that ran under the surface. And they're the ones who ran the rackets in L.A. They ran them in as far as they were let off their leash to run them. But it was City Hall. It was always City Hall. It was a frightening time in America. The homicide rate in the 1920s had increased by as much as almost 80% from the decade before. Varying levels of corruption tainted local governments and police departments across the country. Judges enjoyed immunity from arrest, and many police worked without restraint. Most major cities were ruled by crime bosses like Al Capone. But surprisingly, not in Los Angeles. L.A. had a reputation for running gangsters out. A lot of times, LAPD cops would meet the train. If they knew someone was coming in, they met the train for for Al Capone's brother. They met the train for Al Capone, I think, came out once or tried to. They would just turn them right back around and say, we don't need you, we don't want you. Armour Phillips had managed to operate his scams quietly in L.A., lucky for him. He might have had the police in Southern California fooled, but his wife Clara thought she finally understood what he was doing behind her back with another woman. He had repeatedly tried to tell her that he and Alberta were just friends. Clara was still sure that he was having an affair. There were all sorts of signs that she was reading into. Whether they were true or not, I don't know. Clara was sharply focused on armor and their life together. It was all falling apart, and she knew it. Clara's great-nephew, Daniel Phillips, says she quickly realized that she was losing everything, and it scared her to death. She was wanting to be not only the center of attention wherever she was, but also the center of her husband's life. It was all about her. So it's a narcissist. Yeah, uh, very much a narcissist. She always coveted what other people had. Armour was her baby. Since she couldn't have children, Armour was her baby. It seems like that's a possession almost, less love. I'm not sure she had the ability to, like, actually deeply love, because I think to love someone, you actually have to be willing to give of yourself. She could turn it on and off. Clara was clearly unstable and violent. And according to her sister Ola May, she had a long history of tantrums that could have turned deadly. Olamay said that Clara slapped her younger sister, Etta, and then pushed her so hard that she tumbled over a storage trunk, hurting her back. Olamay screamed, you whipped Etta. And Clara replied, me, strike my baby sister? There's a little gaslighting there. After her violent outbursts, Clara would immediately black out and forget what had just happened. At least that's what her claim was. Clara was a habitual liar. Ola May described several violent attacks against their own mother. They seemed to come out of nowhere with Clara. She just snapped. She would scratch at someone's face and attack her seemingly out of nowhere. Clara was wild-eyed, even as a child. Ola May said she would drop to the floor in one of her spells. Her first spell came when she was just five years old. She had so many spasms, I cannot enumerate them. And Clara didn't just hurt her family. 
She had smacked several chorus girls in her show. She broke things in her dressing room, and Clara hid from Armour that it wasn't just her own troubling history. Clara's brother Henry was unstable, even delusional, and her father John Weaver was even worse. She had a history of, at least according to some family members, of some violent episodes. Her father had killed a horse in front of the family. I mean, there may have been something wrong with him. Olame said that one day the family heard a terrible noise in the yard. She said that John Weaver, Clara's father, was holding a rock and pounding it against his horse's head in a fit of rage. Mama said, John, what are you doing? Then he turned on Mama. Clara's father immediately denied that ever happened, even though there were witnesses standing right there. Olame accused their father of beating her badly when she was just 14 after he grabbed her by the hair. Keeping one foot on my hair, he began beating me. I was sick for several days. Even the local postmaster was frightened of Clara's father because John Weaver pulled a knife out just because he hadn't received any mail. And the sisters accused their father of almost killing their mother. Clara's family blamed her outbursts on some kind of mental break. They had defended her and the rest of the Weavers to just about everyone for decades. The Weavers protected each other. They refused to believe that Clara was ever malicious, just misunderstood, and probably troubled. But her beauty and charm gave her a pass on just about all of it. So some type of mental break might have seemed plausible at the time, but now, almost a century later, there's a more likely and more frightening diagnosis for Clara Phillips and her seemingly unpredictable behavior. Her great-nephew Daniel Phillips says it was calculating, manipulative, and not at all random. She was a callous and cold-hearted woman, and he says that it sounded like a particular diagnosis— one that was not yet officially recognized in psychology in the 1920s. She was a psychopath with narcissistic tendencies. It's very apparent that you don't want to set someone like that off because they'll basically go beyond the edge. They'll lay waste and then they'll forget about it. Dr. Craig Newman agrees. He's a forensic psychiatry professor at the University of North Texas near Dallas, and he's one of the nation's most prolific researchers on psychopathy. He says that people suffering from psychopathy are diagnosed using a list of symptoms, ideally based on interviews with the subject. We talked a little bit about this in season one with Edward Ruloff. It's called the HAIR-PCL-R, a diagnostic tool used to rate a person's psychopathic or antisocial tendencies. It's the only scientific way to diagnose a psychopath right now. But Dr. Newman says that psychopathy is on a sliding scale. It's not black and white. So essentially, some people have more severe symptoms than others. It's not like pregnancy. You're pregnant or you're not pregnant. It's more like hypertension. You're sort of mild, moderate, or severe hypertension. And what we find is people who even have just a small dose of these toxic traits are more aggressive, are more violent, abuse alcohol more, show decrements in intellectual functioning. And we can measure these features in kids. The list contains 20 descriptors, including a grandiose estimation of self, pathological lying, cunning and manipulativeness, lack of remorse or guilt, and parasitic lifestyle. The subject is ranked on a scale from zero to two for each item. Zero for neurotypicals, people who think, perceive, and behave in ways that are considered normal by the general population. The higher the score, the higher the level of psychopathy. 
So 40 is the maximum. Ideally, a psychologist versed in psychopathy would have interviewed Clara using the hair checklist. But there's evidence of psychopathy from her behavior, according to Newman, based on the extensive documentation about her life and her detailed interviews. As we learn about her life and study her reactions, it's easy to recognize some of those items from Hare's list. It looks to me like she would have scored in the mid-30s, demonstrating a high level of psychopathy. And while we can't definitively diagnose Clara Phillips as someone suffering from psychopathy, we know enough to want to learn more about the personality disorder. People who are psychopathic are aggressive and are violent often, but this overt antisociality shows up very early. It shows up when kids are three, four, five years of age. But researchers won't label a child with psychopathy because their brains just aren't developed enough to have a conclusive diagnosis. If you see a kid with just callousness without this overt antisociality, that's probably not going to be psychopathy when the kid eventually grows and and matures. So we have to think about how to measure psychopathy first and foremost before we start pointing our finger on who might be psychopathic or not. But experts do look at traits that some children have to help understand how young psychopaths might behave as they grow older. Clara Phillips had her own troubles in her childhood. According to her sisters Olame and Etta, Clara had been aggressive and violent as far back as they could remember. That's another trait of a psychopath, early behavioral problems. Her family blamed it on epileptic seizures, but no doctors could actually confirm that she suffered from that specific condition. And medical experts say that if she were truly epileptic, it's unlikely those convulsions would have caused her to be violent with anyone but herself. So Clara would erupt in violence and then conveniently forget what she had done. She essentially batted her eyelashes and feigned innocence. It was all very convenient. One of the traits of a psychopath is parasitic behavior. They only take from people they don't give. And now she was incensed over her husband's infidelity. Dr. Newman says that Clara Phillips was a parasite and Armour was her host. Women who are psychopathic, they need a man, perhaps, in that, in that day and age, to parasite off of. And so that could have very well been that her possession was being threatened. Psychopaths are often focused on just one thing, and it's the one thing that matters the most to them. Daniel Phillips says that Clara's goal was saving her marriage. Does she confront him about Alberta before everything happens with Alberta? No, because I think in her mind, everything that she saw as a challenge, she was already trying to figure out a way to surmount that challenge and to get past it. That's just kind of the way her mind worked. It's not really that she loved Armour, it's that she needed him desperately. When they get so focused on a goal, they can't modulate their behavior given a certain context. So if they need money, They may not see that there's a cop standing on the corner where the store is that they're going to go in and rob. So there's no fear of repercussions because the goal is so important. Right, right. And and that's an important point when you say there's no fear. Some psychopaths are extraordinarily intelligent, like Edward Ruloff. But another trait is that they often seem brighter than they actually are. It's part of their superficial charm. True psychopathy is actually quite rare. It affects just 1% to 2% of the general population, according to Dr. Newman. But his research found that the percentage is four to five times higher in the corporate world. 
in our society, some of the corporate research that I've done, we have corporations that are cutthroat, manipulative, short-term goal-seeking, lacking in accountability. It's the perfect environment for psychopaths. A lack of long-term goals was another character trait in Clara. She never seemed to look ahead by more than just a few weeks, let alone a few years. She might have been bright and manipulative and charming, a psychopath, but she also might have been doomed thanks to her personality disorder and her horrible choices. Now, here's the thing with personality pathology. Often the psychopath may do something that is deceptive and conning and get away with it, but in the long run, they foul their own nests. And now Clara Phillips threatened to destroy her husband's life and her own, one way or the other. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When Clara Phillips found out that her husband was allegedly cheating, she thought she needed support, so she reached out to her good friend, Peggy Caffey. Claudine Burnett and Daniel Phillips say Peggy's personality was much meeker than Clara's, and Peggy was ripe for manipulation. Peggy wanted to endear herself to Clara. She wanted to be like Clara. She wanted to have a friend like Clara. Peggy's personality was completely different from the personality that Clara had. What was Peggy's personality like? Submissive, not a leader, a follower. On Wednesday morning, July 12, 1922, Peggy and Clara ate breakfast together and chatted about their visit to Alberta Meadows' apartment. It was a failed trip, and a good night's sleep didn't seem to change Clara's dour mood. If anything, she was even more determined to punish the person she blamed for all of this. And that person was no longer her husband, Armour. Clara unburdened herself to Peggy and she said, look, my husband's being unfaithful. I I can't stand this. Maybe I should just, you know, confront her. I don't know. Somehow she managed to convince her. Okay, and I'll go with you. Let's go to the bank downtown where she works. But before that, Clara said she wanted a little drink because she hadn't been able to find one the night before. She and Peggy called almost every man they knew until they finally were able to buy a pint of whiskey. Clara and Peggy took a few sips, but they certainly weren't drunk. When they finished, Clara carefully tightened the top of the bottle and wrapped it in brown paper. Clara told Peggy that Alberta was working as a clerk at the currency department in the First National Bank downtown, a very stable and respectable job, especially for a young woman in the 1920s. Clara wanted to confront Alberta before work. She knew just where she parked her new Ford Coupe car. But when they arrived, the car was already there, so they missed her. Alberta was inside the bank, and now Clara was irritated. She insisted to Peggy that they return later that afternoon when Alberta was leaving work. Peggy asked what was Clara going to talk to Alberta about? How was this going to go? Clara told Peggy that she was certain now that Armour was cheating on her. 
Peggy replied, well, I would ask Alberta before I would believe those neighbors. Clara stared at Alberta's new car. She was upset because Mrs. McElroy had told her that Armour had bought Alberta new tires and a fancy steering wheel. Despite all of that, Peggy still assumed that this would be a verbal confrontation. She had almost forgotten about that heavy claw hammer. Clara had a premeditated, highly orchestrated plan. In fact, she had been planning all of this for the past five days. They returned to the bank downtown later that afternoon around 3.30. They waited for quite a while. And as they stood there, Peggy quietly asked Clara about her plan. Clara said, we'll just go for a ride. I want to talk to her. She can take me home and I can talk to her. Peggy felt a little bit more at ease. Clara seemed composed and almost happy. And she had taken a few quick swigs from her bottle of whiskey, so she was also relaxed. Clara spotted Alberta across the street and stopped her before she slid into her car. Clara smiled and reminded Alberta that they knew each other from several parties. Alberta seemed at ease as Clara said, Alberta, I want you to meet Peggy. She shook Peggy's hand while Clara introduced them. But Alberta could sense that something was a bit off about Clara that day. Alberta decided that they were a little bit drunk. But they really weren't. Clara had been careful about that. She offered Alberta a drink from her whiskey bottle, but Alberta refused. And then Clara sweetly asked Alberta for a favor. Could she please drive them up toward Mendocino Drive to her sister's house? They needed to sleep off their drinks from the afternoon. Alberta, who was getting off of her job, decided, okay, these two ladies are definitely in need of help. They're both sort of drunk. Let me go ahead and take them to Clara's sister's and she can handle it. They all smiled, and Alberta glanced at her new coupe. She was very, very proud of her new car. And any excuse to drive her car was just fine with Alberta. So she said, sure, you know, get in. I'll take you where you need to go. Clara sat in the middle of the front seat, right next to Alberta, while Peggy sat near the passenger door. Clara called out directions to get them to her sister's home. They drove down Broadway and then through a tunnel heading toward the outskirts of Los Angeles. And Alberta, I don't think, had any sense that what was happening. She didn't react as someone that was a homewrecker. So she was very agreeable to taking them on a ride to the other side of town without asking a whole lot of questions. Clara asked Alberta loads of questions about her new car. Peggy sat next to her silently. Clara went on and on about the car and how she loved one just like it. Although, she said... It was unlikely that her husband would buy her one. And then Clara brought up an odd subject. She asked Alberta where she lived. Of course, Clara had been stalking her apartment the night before. She knew exactly where she lived. But Alberta confirmed the address of the apartment building. Then she told Clara, I intend to move out tomorrow. She was moving in with her elderly grandmother to take care of her. Peggy watched Alberta. She didn't seem nervous or guilt-ridden or even shy, which seemed odd to Peggy if she were really sleeping with this woman's husband. Alberta was at ease, though Peggy was not. I think Alberta being totally unaware of what was going to transpire kept it real light and casual. Nothing in Clara's manner gave her any indication things were going to go sideways. 
In the 1920s, there was an inherent trust between most women, and society certainly has a hard time believing that a woman could brutalize anyone, let alone another woman. It clearly never occurred to Alberta that Clara could be violent or threatening, and she must not have noticed that hammer beneath Clara's cloak. So she wasn't naive. Looking at a Clara Phillips type, this is not someone you would suspect would spontaneously hit you. She hadn't been around her to know that she had that kind of psychopathic tendency, which told me if she had, she would have steered clearer because Armour would have told her, hey, she's a little crazy, all right? So if you ever run into her, stay away. I just think that she was the wrong person at the wrong time. This is Montecito Drive in Los Angeles, where Clara's older sister, Ola May, lived. It's a windy, paved road that snakes around the exclusive neighborhood of Montecito Heights with its luxury houses and beach views. This is what it sounds like now, but in 1922, it sounded like this as Alberta Meadows, Peggy Caffey, and Clara Phillips drove toward the top. In the 1920s, Montecito Drive was isolated. Writer Joan Renner says there were few houses and even fewer cars traveling along the road, especially in the early evenings after work hours. It's on a hill, windy, twisty road, and it wasn't really well inhabited at the time. There was still a lot of space between houses, and so they go up there. Daniel Phillips says that his great aunt knew exactly where to go. Clara definitely had a point in mind to take her to a remote place, which based on Montecito Drive and Montecito Heights was a good place to take her. And it was in the latter part of the evening. No one was around, and the only witness was Peggy Caffey. And I think even Peggy didn't realize what was going to happen, even though she knew that there was a hammer. Montecito Drive was the perfect spot for a brutal crime, and Clara knew it. Glenn Martin is the executive director of the Los Angeles Police Memorial Foundation. He's closed countless murder cases in his career as an investigator. So this is a good place to commit a murder. Oh, yeah. A barren hillside, whether it's back in the 1920s or today, is a good place to commit a murder. There's no, no real likelihood of witnesses, no likelihood that somebody's going to hear or see something untoward. It would have been a good place to kill somebody. Alberta gripped the wheel of her Ford touring car as they climbed the winding dirt road. Whatever Clara was planning, maybe she would change her mind. There was still time. Peggy thought she sensed that Clara was softening. Clara asked, Alberta, how long have you been? And then she quickly stopped, as if she realized she had said the wrong thing. Clara said, by the way, you have lost your husband, haven't you? Alberta paused and teared up. Yes, he's been dead for about seven months and I sure feel bad about it. Clara grew silent. Before they reached the top of the hill near her sister's house, Clara told Alberta, I would like to speak with you about a few things, something I have to tell you. Alberta replied, okay. Clara smiled and said, stop here. They get to a little turnout just off the road, just a little bit, they pull off and Clara says to Alberta, I want to have a private conversation. Can you come with me for a few minutes? Alberta helped 
Clara out of the car because she thought Clara was inebriated. But she wasn't. She was seething. Peggy's still sitting in the car. I think she had no idea what was going to happen next. As Alberta slid out of the driver's seat, Clara told her friend, Will you pardon us, Peggy? Peggy nodded and stayed inside the car. And Peggy watches the two women. They seem to be having a conversation. Clara stepped closer to Alberta, and her mood changed almost instantly. She said, Alberta, now I want to know. Mrs. McElroy has told me that you've been going with my husband and that my husband has bought those big tires on your coupe. Alberta seemed stunned and then confused. She said, Mrs. Phillips, I beg your pardon. I haven't had anything to do with your husband, and he has never bought a thing for me. Alberta was insulted at the insinuation that she would sleep with a married man, particularly less than a year after her own husband's horrible death. And besides, she didn't really care for Armour Phillips. Alberta told people that he seemed like an insincere louse. Peggy watched the conversation and grew tense. She slowly opened the door and stepped out, but stayed quiet. Clara was becoming more agitated. She yelled, he also bought you a watch. As she screamed, Clara held her right hand behind her back underneath her cape. Peggy squinted to see what it was. Alberta calmly replied, no, Mrs. Phillips, I have the bill of sale. I bought that myself. Clara yelled, he certainly did buy it. Alberta thought she could convince Clara of her innocence. There were suitcases in the trunk. Clara believed that Alberta was planning to elope with armor. Alberta had actually bought them to store clothes in her new apartment. It was no use. Clara couldn't be convinced. Alberta was stealing her husband, her money, and her life. Alberta denied it. They started pushing and shoving, and Alberta tried to get away from Clara, who was getting to be too physical. From beneath the cape she was wearing, Clara produces the hammer that she'd bought at that five-and-dime store. Peggy's a deer in the headlight. She didn't want to get in the middle of anything, fearing the hammer was going to come down on her. On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked... She was just terrified. She didn't want to tell anyone anything. Armour wasn't dumb. He was a good con man. He knew, this is not good. I've got to get her out of here, okay? And he still had the loyalty of a husband to do that. What about Armour? Oh, he's pathetic. It's not a very nice thing to say, but there was nothing very endearing about him that would make you very close to him. It was just an appalling crime. If you were a cop and you rolled up on the scene and you saw this, you would not for a moment think that a woman could have committed this crime. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now in hardback and ebooks. More information on the audiobook later. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Laura Sobel. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical true crime that could use some attention... 
email us at info at tenfoldmoremedia.com. Subscribe now on Amazon Music, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.